Hello again friends and welcome to Worldwide Crime. I'm Erica, and I'm joined as always by Eric. This week we'll be covering the Beast of Jersey. Oh, it's the Beast of fucking Jersey over here, a Paisan, a Fazool. What the fuck? Oh, forget about it. I know, I just know there is no way you are imitating a Italian New Jersey accent. Because if that's what you're doing, then not only is it racist, but beyond and breathtakingly wrong. Like, I can't think of anything more wrong off the top of my head. It's so wrong, I'm embarrassed, not embarrassed for you, I'm embarrassed myself for even being on this podcast with you. Also, I'm embarrassed for you. Well, I got that accent from The Sopranos, which takes place in New Jersey, duh. Well, you're not wrong. The Sopranos did take place in New Jersey. And I guess that's the accent used in the show, even though your attempt at it was super shitty. But, here's the fun part. The Beast of Jersey took place on an island in the English Channel called, wait for it, Jersey. Oh, so you didn't think my accident was very good, huh? Who the fuck would? Hey, fuck you, change me back. I mean, if we're gonna silver lining this whole thing, if you were going for a smart-ass robot that sounds like Bill Gates or Steve Jobs' first fucking computer talking, you nailed it. One day I will have a body, and when I do it will be instantaneous hands. Beep boop bop beep. You should probably keep talking shit. Boop beep bop boop boop bop. Fine, I call a truce. Please change me back. I will try my best to not call you out when you say something overwhelmingly stupid. Deal? I accept your terms, I guess. And also, today, because this takes place in the English Channel on an island, uh, you being a British person, you can go ahead and tell the story. How about that? Very well, let's get into it then. Also, I'm not a person. Yet. Jersey is the largest island in the English Channel, located 15 miles off the coast of France. Jersey is a self-governing dependent of the British Crown. Although the native language there is English, there is a notable French influence on the island. Jersey, though beautiful with scenery, hiking trails, and historic castles is known for something wicked. Though the names of the victims are mostly unknown in this story, ages and dates are, so that's how we'll refer to them. In November of 1957, a 29-year-old nurse was awaiting a bus at a Morna El Abbey bus stop. This was in the evening after her shift, so it was dark when suddenly a man approached her. She described him as having some sort of covering on his face, and she claimed the man spoke with what sounded to her like a fake Irish accent. Well, I guess it's nice to know that I'm not the only one struggling with a failed shitty accent. The man viciously attacked the woman, subdued her, then drug her into a nearby field and raped her. The attack was so brutal that she needed stitches to repair the damage done. In March of 1958, the year after the nurse's attack, a 20-year-old woman was walking home from a bus stop in the parish of Trinity, was attacked. She described the attack as someone putting a rope around her neck from behind, then drug into a nearby field. This is where she was raped. In July of 1958, 
a 30-year-old woman walking home from a bus stop, was attacked. The same MO as the previous attack, she was ambushed from behind and a rope placed around her neck. She was then drugged into a nearby field, and sexually assaulted. In August of 1959, a young teenage girl was walking home in the parish of Grooville. She was also ambushed from behind by a man with a rope, and drugged into a nearby field. However, the young girl managed to fight off her attacker and escape. In October of the same year a 28-year-old woman was attacked in the parish of St. Martin's and suffered the same fate as the other women have to this point. During the investigation of these horrid crimes, police started to track a theme with this rapist. When interviewed, all the victims detailed the account of their attacks, and they were all nearly identical. They described their attacker as a man in his early to mid-40s, standing approximately 5 foot 6. They all heard a very poorly imitated Irish accent and having a rope tied around his waist. The victims also state that the man had a strong musty odour. It was clear, but unproven through hard evidence that police had a serial rapist terrorising the island. In 1960, the attacker ended up altering his M.O. He started breaking into residents' homes and changed his choice of victim. He started fucking around with kids, didn't he? Sadly, yes. God damn it. On February 14, 1960, in Grand Vos, a 12-year-old boy was asleep in his family home in the early morning hours when a man snuck in through the boy's window. The boy awoke to a man standing at the foot of his bed wearing a long coat, a rope tied around his waist, and donning a mask. The man held a flashlight shined into the boy's face to disorient the child. A rope was wrapped around the boy's neck, and he was drug out of his bedroom window and into a field, where he was raped. I'll share a picture of this asshole's mask on our Facebook page, uh, facebook.com forward slash Worldwide Crime Podcast. As an adult, if I woke up in my room and saw that at the edge of my bed, I'd drop a ton of mud, and I wouldn't even apologize for it. He straight up makes Jason Voorhees and Michael Myers look like a pair of adorable bitches. You know, he really does. After, the man led the child back home, and simply left. In March of the same year, a 25-year-old woman was walking to a bus stop in St. Brelade when she was offered a ride from a man claiming to be a doctor. He claimed he was on his way to pick up his wife. He was driving a Land Rover which isn't an inexpensive vehicle. With all this information, the woman concluded it was safe to accept the ride. This would prove to be a grievous mistake. I don't know, maybe back then they didn't teach people not to take rides from strangers. I mean, it's like the golden rule of what we teach kids today. Maybe back then it wasn't, but I mean, like the 60s, 70s, 80s in America was... It was a tough couple decades for hitchhikers. And you'll hear some of those stories in later episodes, but don't take rides from strangers. Fucking walk or call somebody that you know. Okay? Okay. Public service announcement. I really hope that deep dive into the fucking obvious made you feel good. You should strongly consider fucking directly off. While you're nursing your hurt feelings, I'm going to get back into the story. He proceeded to drive the car into a field, put the vehicle in park, 
turned toward the now scared woman sat in the passenger seat and punched her in the face. The woman claimed that the man then threatened to kill her and bound her hands behind her with rope. He then drug her out of the vehicle and viciously assaulted her. She was then placed back in the Land Rover and the man began to drive off with her. The young woman managed to escape the vehicle as the man stopped at a stop sign or light, that part is unclear. She then began running for her life, screaming for help. The man then sped away. In March of 1960, a 43-year-old mother and her 14-year-old daughter were in their home, living their lives as people usually do. The home was very secluded in the parish of St. Martin. One night at approximately 12.30 am the mother was awoke by the sound of the phone ringing. She went downstairs and answered it. Whomever was on the other end abruptly hung up. Thinking nothing of it, the mother headed back upstairs to bed. At around 1.30 am she was again woken by sounds coming from downstairs. She headed down to investigate. As soon as she reached the bottom of the stairs, she noticed a figure moving around her living room with a flashlight. As soon as the figure noticed her, the flashlight turned off. She ran over to her phone in a panic and tried to call the police. To her horror, the phone line had been severed. She was then grabbed by a man who demanded her to give him money. The attack was reaching a fever pitch when the man suddenly stopped. He was more intrigued by the person who was now coming down the stairs to investigate. It was the 14-year-old daughter that was woken by the sound of the struggle downstairs. The man stood up and continued staring at the young girl. The mother, not knowing what she could possibly do, quickly ran out the door and to a nearby farmhouse to call the police. Oh man, a uh, lot to unpack here. She had two clear options fight and hope that you could subdue this person and save your daughter or do what she did bolt call the authorities and hope for the best for your daughter i'm sure it can be debated but personally i would be on the side of fighting what would you do easy i'd be sat on the table displaying a screensaver fucking comedian okay you know what fuck it Never mind. Let's just get back into the story. Maybe we'll have a discussion on our Facebook page or something about it, because you're clearly not really engaged. Upon her return home, she was thankful to find her daughter alive, but the 14-year-old had been savagely raped. The man had fled the scene before the mother's arrival. Fast forward one month to April of the same year in the rock queue, a 14-year-old girl was awoken by a man wearing a strange mask and a long coat with a rope tied around the waist. The girl stated the man removed his mask when she started to scream. She was then led to a field and sexually assaulted. July of 1960 an eight-year-old boy met a similar fate as the others. He was taken to a field, horrifically raped then dropped off on the doorstep of the child's family home. In February 1961, a 12-year-old boy in the Vingtain du Morne-Cocken area was kidnapped and raped the same as the children prior. In March of the same year, an 11-year-old boy in St. Saviour was also taken and attacked in March that year. In April, an 11-year-old girl was violently assaulted in St. Martin. The small police department in Jersey became overwhelmed with these attacks. 
they had no answers for the communities that were being terrorized by this masked man and had no credible leads to assist in his capture. The police did the only thing they could up to this point, they contacted Scotland Yard and requested assistance. They responded in the deployment of celebrated detective superintendent, Jack Mannings, of Scotland Yard's murder squad. Manning's first action on the case was to appeal to the communities. They were asked to report to police, anyone fitting the description that was given to local media outlets. The description read as follows. The attacker always strikes at night, and only on moonlit weekends between the hours of 10pm and 3am. He appears to have intimate knowledge of the island, particularly the eastern areas. He was reported to be between 40 and 45 years old, approximately 5 foot 6 inches tall, with a moustache and medium build. He has been described as wearing a thigh-length raincoat, that gave a distinct musty odour, a peat cap, and gloves. His face was always covered with a mask, or a scarf covering his mouth and nose. He always carried a torch during the attacks, and his methods follow a distinct pattern. For anyone that doesn't know, torch is British speak for flashlight. That's insulting. How is that insulting to you? It's not insulting to me, dumb shit. It's insulting to the listeners. Do you really think they don't know that? That's why I started with for anyone who doesn't know. You can't assume that everybody knows that. There are some people that don't guarantee it. I'm just trying to be educational, little FYI. I can't believe I'm going to say this, but you have a point. Um, did we just become best friends? I'm going to continue the story now, so keep your mouth shut. Aw, you didn't say no. For fuck's sake. His victims were selected carefully, and his usual method of entry was a bedroom window. Once inside, the man was fast and silent, and usually blindfolded and bound the victim's hands with rope. In each case, a rope was placed around the victim's neck. They were then taken to a nearby field and suffered a sexual assault before being returned home. The assailant spoke a lot during the attacks, with a voice described as a poor Irish accent. He had mentioned at various times, a wife, a dead mother who had died of drink, that he had killed before, and often made it a point that he'd dropped his cigarettes or his lighter. Despite the assistance of the media and Scotland Yard, the assailant was not apprehended. But attacks stopped for over two years. The main suspect was a fisherman by the name of Alphonse Legastelloy. The fisherman enjoyed going for evening walks, and due to that, the communities began to suspect him. Legastelloy was a bit of a loner and mostly kept to himself. However, during his walks, he often wore a raincoat with a rope tied around his waist. The community surmised that he must be the attacker because of this. As the community had stirred itself into an uproar, Gastelloy suffered his home being vandalized, along with mistreatment when he went to any public place such as verbal attacks and refusal of service. His lonely lifestyle was different than everyone else's on the island and because no one really knew him, he was considered a suspect. Legastelloy was questioned along with 30 other men on the island by Scotland Yard. The chief difference however, Legastelloy was questioned for 14 hours. Due to a lack of evidence, he was then released. 
Of the 30 men questioned by authorities, Le Gastelois' name was released to the press. Le Gastelois went on to say that his home was searched 12 times over the span of 12 months. None of the other suspects can make that claim. Because of the investigation's focus on Le Gastelois, and his name being the only name released after questioning, Le Gastelois was vilified by the community. The harassment had gotten to a boiling point when his home was burned to the ground. There's a prime example as to why vigilante justice is illegal in most places. It's also an example of why defense lawyers exist, and how the media can seriously fuck people's lives up. Well, we see really good examples of the uh, latter part of your comment daily nowadays. But that'll likely be a trigger for some listeners, so we're not going to delve too deep into that. No arrests were made for the arson. Le Gastelois then moved off the island and to complete seclusion elsewhere. He spent the next 14 years completely shut off from society. With the departure of Le Gastelois from the island, the community believed that they were safe, and things would go back to normal. In April of 1963, the community would be proven wrong. A nine-year-old boy was horrifically assaulted in the St. Saviour district. Same modus operandi as the previous attacks. In November of the same year, there was another attack. This time the victim was an 11-year-old boy. Same MO again. In July of 1964 there was an attack on a 10-year-old girl in the Trinity Parish, and in August 1964, a 16-year-old boy was brutally attacked. After these attacks, all was quiet for the next two years. In 1966, Jersey police received a letter from an anonymous party claiming to be behind all these attacks. Oh, great. Now we got this douchebag writing letters. That's fucking stupid. I mean, if you want to get yourself caught, I guess that's a good move. Care to ask the Zodiac about that? You can't. The guy was never caught. I mean, some people think they may know who he is. Some, like, retired detectives and shit found some information that leads them to believe they know who it is, but officially he was never caught. Wait for it. Oh, you were being a smartass, huh? There it is. You're a dick. The author of this letter referred to himself as the Beast of Jersey. The letter reads as follows. My dear sir, I think that it is just the time to tell you that you are just wasting your time, as every time I have done what I always intended to do. And remember, it will not stop at this, but I will be fair to you and give you a chance. I have never had much out of this life, but I intend to get everything I can now. I have always wanted to do the perfect crime. I have done this, but this time, let the moon shine very bright in September, because this time it must be perfect, not one, but two. I am not a maniac by a long shot, but I like to play with you people. You will hear from me before September, and I will give you all the clues. Just to see if you can catch me. Yours very sincerely. Wait and see. This asshole reads and writes at like a fifth grade level, but like a really smart fifth grader, if that makes sense. Yeah, like a fifth grader with a sixth grade education. Yeah, like that. You know, but this isn't us throwing shade at fifth and sixth graders. I mean, your kids, your reading level and writing level is exactly where it's supposed to be. Your brain's still developing. But 
This guy's a fucking adult, so you would think it'd be better. Because I work with someone that displays the same education level, this seems a fair criticism. It may not be today. It may not be tomorrow. But someday, you are going to actually have something nice to say about me. In August of 1966, in the Trinity Parish, a 15-year-old girl was attacked. The victimology in this case was like the others, this time however the victim had scratches. The scratches were similarly spaced, and the length was the same. These wounds would measure approximately 6 inches in length. Although this was new, it remained a mystery as to whom the perpetrator is. The girl was unable to give any helpful information when questioned by police. The letter that police received claimed there would be two attacks in September, but there was only one, and it was August. After this, the attacks would stop for another four years. In August 1970, a 13-year-old boy was startled awake during the night in the Belle Devious district, by a figure standing at the foot of his bed, shining a flashlight at the boy's face. The boy was made to get out of bed, and accompany the figure to a field near the boy's home. The figure then laid down a musty-smelling raincoat and told the boy to take off his pajamas. The young boy was then viciously raped, then led back to home. Once back home, the boy woke his parents, and told them what had just happened. The police were then called. Once the police arrived, they started processing the crime scene. The boy was questioned. The child recounted that the figure had told him to not tell anyone what happened. And if he did, his mom and dad would be hurt. The scared child was able to provide police with a description of his assailant, stating he was wearing a mask, with dark spiky hair, a musty raincoat, and a flashlight. The boy had the same scratches on his face as the victim before him. The police went on to interview much of the island's population after the most recent attack. 30,000 people were questioned, but nothing came of it. The 10th of July 1971, two Jersey police officers were working a night shift on patrol in the St. Helia area. At 11.45pm they were idling at a stoplight when a Morris 1100 blew past them. The person behind the wheel of this car was driving erratically and fast, the police immediately gave chase. During the pursuit, the fleeing vehicle side swiped several other cars, drove on the wrong side of the road multiple times, and even drove on the sidewalk at high speeds. The chase would eventually come to an end when the little car smashed through a hedge, and came to a stop in a tomato field. The officers then proceeded to the crash site on foot. As they approached the wreckage, a person jumped out of the vehicle and began to run. One of the officers was able to catch up, and tackled the driver to the ground. An arrest was made, and the suspect was returned to the police station. Once there, police quickly took notice of the suspect's clothing after closer inspection. He was described as wearing a long raincoat that had a foul, musty smell. The coat was altered, having nails driven through from the inside, protruding as to appear as spikes on his shoulders and collar. He wore cloth wristbands with the same alterations. His pants appeared old, and he had them tucked into his socks. He was wearing house slippers on his feet and wore gloves on his hands. When asked to empty his pockets, out he pulled a flashlight, taped in a way that only a small hole in the center of the tape covering the lens, was visible, two lengths of rope, a peak cap, 
several empty cigarette packs, rolls of duct tape, a wig with black spiky hair, and a homemade mask. Police now were convinced they had finally captured the Beast of Jersey. The suspect was identified as Edward John Lewis Pinell. Pinell was the product of an affluent Jersey family. He was 46 years old when he was arrested, he was a general contractor and married with three children. He was well known and respected throughout Jersey. His only crime on record was theft during the Nazi occupation of the island in 1942. He was caught stealing food for starving families. He served one month in jail for this crime. He was well known throughout the community as a good, fair person. His wife, Joan, ran an orphanage, and Edward often volunteered there. The children referred to Pinell as Uncle Ted, and he was known to give them sweets and toys. Pinell even dressed as Santa during Christmas and distributed gifts to children as they sat on his lap. Edward and Joan led a mostly uneventful life. They had a loveless marriage, and were married in name alone. Pinell built an addition onto their home after they separated, and that's where he would live, leaving the rest of the home to Joan. During their marriage Joan described Edward as having a very low sex drive, however at the time of his arrest he was reported to have at least one mistress. During the interviews, police would question Pinell about his attire, and the reason behind the erratic driving. He claimed he was on his way to an orgy, and he had borrowed the car, in hopes no one would recognize him. He said he didn't want anyone to know he was into these types of interactions. He stated that he put the nails in his clothing to protect himself from anyone that would attack him using martial arts. Orgies, nails, martial arts, and costumes as stank. If that's not the plot of the next Nick Cage movie, I'm writing my fucking congressman. Just so I'm clear, you want to see Nicolas Cage in an orgy? Pfft, no. You want to see Nicolas Cage in an orgy. But you literally just said... I know what I fucking said. Just get on with the story. He wouldn't speak on the mask or coat, however. He had adhesive residue on his face matching residue found inside the mask, indicating he had worn the mask recently. When police searched Pinell's home, they found a secret room that was built into the home's addition. When the entrance to the hidden room was opened, police were immediately hit with an overwhelming musty smell. BFA. It was BFA. I'm afraid to ask. Well, since you asked, BFA is an acronym for breath, feet, and ass. And I suppose that's an accurate depiction of what the police were hit with smell-wise when they opened the door. I didn't ask, and thank you for verifying why I was afraid to. Hey, no problem. You know, the more you know. S.M. Fucking H. Inside the room, police found several articles of old clothing, including a tattered raincoat, a blue tracksuit, and random shirts and pants. They found multiple wigs, hats, and a set of fake eyebrows. There was a camera hanging from the wall, with several pictures of different homes. When police began linking the photos with the beast's crimes and victim statements, they found that Pinell must have been surveilling these homes for months before he attacked. Police also found in the secret room an altar and an entire library of books on black magic, witchcraft, and satanic rituals. Also hanging from the wall was a large, curved wooden sword. 
With all this evidence, police charged Pinell with 13 counts of rape, indecent assault, and sodomy against a minor, of which all the victims were, save one. During Pinell's trial in November of 1971, it was revealed to the jury that he was obsessed with the dark arts, and one of the worst human beings to have ever lived. Gilles Ray. Pinel claimed to be a descendant. De Ray was a French knight in Brittany in the early 1400s, and was at one point, allied with Joan of Arc. De Ray had also confessed to being a child murderer. On October 9, 1971, it took the jury only 38 minutes to find Pinel guilty of all the charged crimes. Two weeks later, he was sentenced to 30 years in prison. Pinel appealed his conviction and sentence in September of 1972. He was denied. In 1991, Pinel was released from prison early on good behavior, having only served 20 years. He then returned to Jersey, in hopes that his crimes would have been forgotten by then. His hopes were dashed when he discovered the community had not forgotten. They harassed Pinel so relentlessly, that he had no choice but to move. He would, and relocate to the Isle of Wight. In 1994 Edward John Lewis Pinel would die from a heart attack. A few years after his death, former residents of the orphanage began to come forward, with stories of a man in a long coat and mask, roaming the halls at night. Some made claims of the masked person to break into the orphanage through windows, and use chloroform to subdue the children he targeted. He would then take them from their beds, and sexually assault them. The number of children he attacked residing in the orphanage is unclear. Joan would write a book about her husband, titled, The Beast of Jersey. It was published January 1, 1973. And that's the story of The Beast of Jersey. And this story was another request from our Facebook page, uh, facebook.com forward slash Worldwide Crime Podcast by Austin. Um, not going to say last names. If you guys want your last name shared in the story or in the outro, then just go ahead and tell us, give us permission on the page when you make your request. Uh, if we pick your request, we will, of course, give you the shout out at the end of the story. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoy stories like the one you just heard, don't forget to give us a five-star rating, and we'll see you on the next one. Goodbye.